Genesis 6.10 through 7.5. So I've said before, the Holy Word of God is the inspired, infallible Word of God, but the verse numbers and chapter breaks are not. I want to begin with sola scriptura. That's Latin. And this truth, scripture alone, because that's what that means, was the catalyst for the Reformation. It wasn't the men that were used, but it was the truth of the word of God. Sola scriptura means that scripture alone is authoritative for the faith and practice of of the Christian. And if you call yourself a Christian, you need to understand that that is truth in your life. The Bible is complete. It's authoritative. All true. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful teaching for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3.16. Because, you see, if you don't hold that the Bible is infallible, the God-breathed word, then on what basis do you stand before him? If this isn't his word, if you can't deem this as an absolute, then how do you know that you are saved from his wrath? How do you even know that he has a wrath or that he actually even is? But you see, sola scriptura doesn't mean or imply, though, that the Bible speaks about every topic in our lives. Because there is room for logic and reason and even human traditions in the life and the practice of the church and of the believer. The Bible doesn't speak about lighting or electricity, climate control, fossil fuels. They're not mentioned in the Bible, nor are schools, seminaries, or grocery stores. In saying that scripture alone is authoritative for the faith and practice of the Christian, what is meant is that while we are meant to use reason and logic and even biblical human traditions as we live our life, our lives are supposed to be hemmed in, governed by and protected by the overarching truths that concern every aspect of, of our lives and which are spoken of by the Bible. In short, we're supposed to live by what the Bible says. If it tells us not to murder, we stand against murder, all murder, including abortion. If it says that we don't steal, that we don't commit adultery, that, that, that we are supposed to honor our parents, we do those things. And most importantly, it tells us to honor God. And so we to the best of our ability, try to do that. And this is the defining mark of a disciple, the desire and attempt to obey and live as commanded. And as from our sermon today, you're going to see how this practically works out in the life of one of our brothers in Christ, in the life of Noah, verse 10 through 12. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
Verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw that the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. You see, you may not understand this, but verse 10 is given to us by God concerning Noah. In verse 10, we are told how the godly act in the face of rampant violence, in the spread of corruption. Noah didn't join or found a political action committee. He didn't store up guns and ammunition. He didn't isolate or insulate himself. God tells us that Noah was obedient and faithful. So he got married. And he had children. Noah lived at a time when the church was almost non-existent. He lived in a time where wrong was considered right, where evil was a norm, and where there seemed to be absolutely no hope. So he had children. And he had as many children as the Lord allowed him to. To Noah, it was appointed to have Three children. Saints, we who live in a culture and a time that hates the godly institution of marriage, that hates the godly institution of family, we are called to stand and obey. And the best and the easiest way that we can do that is get married. Love your spouse as directed by the Lord and then have Lots of children. Lots of children. As many as the Lord will allow you to have. You see, the normal, natural reaction to those, for those who have been redeemed within this culture is to look all around us and decide that it would be very unloving to bring children into this God-hating world. But that's not the godly reaction. You see, the command to be fruitful and multiply didn't change after the sin of Adam. Genesis 9-1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You see, biblical marriage is a representation of the union between Christ and his church, as told to us in Ephesians 5, 22-30. There we read, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. You see, marriage is not a cultural institution. The government has no right and no obligation to license you to be married. The covenant that you make with your spouse 
is a godly covenant that has been instituted by him and even for him. We need to understand is that your marriage, my marriage, just like our lives, is not for us. It's for him. Is marriage desirable? Yes. Is it pleasurable even when it's hard? Yes. But it's not for you. It's for him. That he would be glorified and magnified. Even in the midst of rampant, sin-loving, God-hating culture. The command by Jesus to go and make disciples is best and even easiest obeyed in the having of children and then training them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, Ephesians 6.4. You see, biblical marriage is a physical representation of the union between Christ and his church. And biblical families are a physical representation of the church in this world. Young people, if you're desiring to glorify God in your life, but you know that you're not called to the mission field, then make this your mission field. Men, learn a trade or get a job that pays well. Marry young, marry well, and have lots of children. And then pour into your wife and your children. This is one way that you are guaranteed to have your life make an impact for Christ. Our marriages, our, our families, our children are meant to show Christ to this world. And this is why having lots of them demonstrates to this world that what they, the world, hold on to is important. Money, prestige, big, fancy, selfish things are not the reason for life, nor are they even the things that bring the most joy in life. I mean, parents, which one of you here would now willingly look back on any one of your children and trade them in for a bigger house, a fancier car, or a nicer TV. And as we look back on our lives, are not the best memories we have with our children? But what about that couple that can't have children? Where, what about that couple where the woman's life is endangered in, by having children? What are they supposed to do? Well, if this is you, then you should take comfort in knowing that the, the one, the God that created you, knows this. Abraham and Sarah were his children. If you as a couple can't have children and you still have that desire, that ability to nurture and train up a child, adopt or foster care. Or just find a child within the church to, dis, uh, to disciple. You see, we must relearn what it means to be Christian. We must question everything that we have been taught. And we need to relearn it from the top.
top down and the inside out. Again, we need to stop and think. What does sola scriptura mean in our life? Practically, if we hold that scripture is sufficient and the, for the Christian's life and faith, then we need to filter everything, all of our decisions that we are making in this life through the lens of this word. We need to look at our lives in contrast to the word to determine how much we are conformed to the world and its systems. Because if you think that you're not conformed to the world, you are sadly mistaken. And if it doesn't matter to you, you're even more sadly mistaken. We need to start looking to the Bible. The thing that we say is the sole source of knowing God and his will. We need to start looking at it and to it and then start obeying it. And when we do, if we do, we're going to find that our lives will be marked by a cultural and fundamentally different set of values compared to those that are our enemies. And when we do that, we will be able to be like Noah and live in hope despite whatever is going on in society. In verse 10, we are told that Noah had three sons. And then verses 11 and 12, we are told of God seeing. The same thing that we're told back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, when after creating all things exactly as they were supposed to be. He said that it was all very good. He saw then. And then verses 11 and 12, we are told that God saw all things a bit different on this day. There we, said, we hear, God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Now, your spiritual radar should have gone up, just in those three verses. In verse 9, God said, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And then in verse 12, we are told that all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So which is it? Or perhaps what happened is that Noah looked around. And he decided that although none are going to go with him, that he alone was going to walk with God. He must have made this free will choice. Is that what these texts are telling us? See, it's either that or the all that God said that he saw in verse 12 was not all. And if that's the case, then he could have missed someone else who was going to choose him. Or he may not have seen that hand in that back row and condemn that person with the sinners. Or maybe, just maybe, verse 12 is hyperbole. God's just exaggerating. Men weren't really all bad. He was just saying that. I mean, you can understand why he would say such a thing. You're going to give him a pass on this. I mean, after all, man had made him mad by disobeying him and continued to do so. So, yeah, he had the right to get mad and even take revenge. But the reality is that verse 12 
is inclusive of all. And God was not acting in revenge or even out of anger. And he wasn't surprised by these events as they had occurred. Any more than he will be surprised by the flood that will soon wash the earth clean once again. All flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And verse 9 is accurate. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. But how? The how of Noah being called righteous, blameless in his generations, has profound, profound implications for you and for me. I have to ask you, would you consider yourself righteous? Blameless in your generation. I know that I wouldn't. And yet, if we are in Christ, since I am in Christ, this is what I'm told that I am. Just like we are told that Noah is. But before we go on, I have to dispel that thought that you can choose to be righteous, that anyone can choose to be righteous, that Noah chose to be righteous. Romans 4.13 tells us, For the promise to Abraham or his descendants that he would be heir to the world was through the law, but through, was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Okay, but just because the righteousness of God is not through the law, but through faith, that doesn't mean that we can't choose faith, does it? 1 Corinthians 1.30 but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And even 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And one last verse to ensure that you don't get off and think that the righteousness of God in Noah is offered to all and that only the smart ones respond. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the question that you should have be running through your mind right now is how could the righteousness of God that is found in Christ be applied in the life of Noah? who lived a couple thousand years before Christ was born. Well, in the last book of the Bible, the closing act of the play of the glorification of God in his creation, we are told this in chapter 13, that even at the end of that age, that there will be those that are still worshiping the serpent. Verse 8, of Revelation chapter 13, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. And the, the Greek there in that verse is ambiguous as to which noun the foundation of the world is referring to, whether it's referring to the book of life or to the, the Lamb itself. But irregardless, you can't have one without the other. And one of the two happened before the command, let there be light, happened. You see, Jesus had not yet been born, and yet this Noah was righteous. So how can this be? This is the question concerning the Old Testament saints 
from us New Testament saints. We, New Testament saints, know that it's faith in Jesus as a Savior, the Messiah that saves us, that makes us righteous. But how were the Old Testament saints made to be saints? Well, in his letter to the churches in the province of Galatia, Paul was dealing with the addition to the gospel being brought in there, specifically law-keeping. And in defense of the gospel, he reaches back to the patriarch of the Jews, Abraham, as the litmus test concerning salvation. Here are verses 1 through 9 of Galatians 3. He says, O foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Those are verses 1 through 4, where he's using their own lives as a proof of what he's about to say concerning the how of salvation. Verses 5 and 6. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Doesn't that language sound familiar? Sounds like our text from today, Noah being found righteous. And then in verse 7, Paul makes a clear distinction about who is a son of Abraham, the man, um, the man who the promise of the covenant was given to. Verse 7, know then that it is to those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And now verses 8 through 9 tell us how Abraham had faith, how he believed, and even what he believed. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of the faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. The point that I'm making here is Abraham, like Noah, like Enoch, had been given faith. And the faith that they had was rooted in, grounded in something very particular. They had been given faith in the one who would come. They believed God and trusted in a coming Savior. And it was the word of God, which is called Scripture in verse 8 of Galatians 3, that preached the gospel to these men. So what word was it that had been preached to them? What word was it that had been given to them that had gave them hope? It was that curse on that serpent of the one that would come and crush his head. There, a redeemer was promised. And in the book of Hebrews, we learn a bit more about the faith that was given to the Old Testament saints. Hebrews 11.13 tells us, These all died in faith, the Old Testament saints, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, which is how we are supposed to live as well. And then verses 39 through 40 of Hebrews 11 groups all the Old Testament saints. He said, there it says, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. 
And you're thinking, so what do we have to do with them being made perfect? Well, God, through the Apostle Paul, explains this to us in the letter to the church in Rome, chapter 3. The first part of chapter 3 of Romans convicts all humans of sin, the Jews and the Gentiles. And then beginning in verse 21, Paul begins to explain how the Old Testament saints were saved. He says there, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God is once again the focus of the gospel. And here we're told that it has been manifested, revealed, shown to us, made accessible apart from the law. And then verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for, who all, for, who all, all, for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. The righteousness of God made visible in the person and work of Jesus the Christ is made available to a specific group of people. People who are just like all people, sinners. But these called elect group, even though they, like all, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, they are justified by his grace as a gift, not earned, not merited, given. And then we come to the last part of verse 25 of Romans 3. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. And the passing over there that is spoken of isn't turning a blind eye to sin. It's not giving them a pass because Christ had not yet come. The passing over spoken of there is the same passing over that is spoken of in Exodus 12, verse 23. For the Lord will pass through it to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house and strike you. The blood that was applied at the Passover was applied by faith, in faith. Those that were the redeemed believed God, and it was counted to them as righteousness. And then we come to Romans 3, verse 26. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Romans 3, 26 is paramount in understanding the events that are about to unfold in chapters 6 through 11 in the book of Genesis. Verse 26 tells us that the condemnation of the wicked and the destruction of all mankind was just on the part of God. God is good, and he must punish sin because it is anti-God. This is the just part that is played out for us in, in Genesis 6 through 11. But he's also the justifier. He imputes his righteousness into a man, Noah, and he saves him through the flood of his wrath on the rest of humanity. Saints, I fear that there's often a nearsightedness within us do you remember how I said just a few minutes ago that I would hesitate to say that I was righteous? This is the nearsightedness that I'm speaking about. 
Remember that we began talking about the absolute infallibility of the Bible, sola scriptura. The Bible tells us that if we are in Christ, that we are a new creation. Not a new creation if we feel like it. Not a new creation if we work hard enough at it. We are a new creation. This is the nearsightedness that is unfortunate in the life of many of us. We don't understand who we are, what we are in Christ. And this nearsightedness impacts how we live, what we expect of ourselves, and even how we think. You see, there is power in truth. We in our culture in our day sometimes can call this positive thinking. You should have positive thoughts. And there is power in positive thinking. But just because you, can, you believe that you can fly like Superman, if you try, you will find that you're much more like Buzz Lightyear than Superman. You're good at falling, not flying. No matter how much positive thinking you do, at all. And see, there's this pretty well-known heretic out there who attracts multiplied thousands to hear him give a pep talk every Sunday. And every Sunday, before he stands before these multiplied thousands, he raises this book. And he tells them, repeat after me. This is my Bible. And I am what it says I am. And I have what it says that I have. I can do what it says that I can do. Today I will be taught the word of God. I will boldly confess. My mind is alert. My heart is receptive. I will never be the same. <laughs> and what he says is truth. And then he begins to preach heresy that contradicts this Bible. And the people love it because it makes them feel spiritual. It makes them to believe all those things, those lies that he is telling them, what the Bible says that they are. The truth that he tells them makes them believe tells them that the Bible does not command you to obey. The Bible does not command you to sacrifice, to live a life that is marked by Christ and obedience to the Word of God. But the reality of what the Bible says of you, because you are in Christ, it's an important distinction that we have to hold on to. We aren't promised our best life now. We are not promised wealth, health, and beauty. We're not promised an easy life, a more comfortable existence here. We are promised and given so much more than that. We're promised heaven. We're given reconciliation with God. We are made righteous. 
And we're promised life, eternal life in Christ. The God-man who gave his all, and we are to emulate him. We are to be his disciples. Because we have been adopted into his family, Ephesians 3.20. We are no longer of the family of Satan, but we are now co-heirs with Christ, Romans 8.17. We are now righteous and have the power to conquer sin, Romans 5.1-11. We are given eternal life in Christ. He is our goal, not heaven. He is what is going to make heaven, heaven, not the streets of gold, not a new earth or a new heaven. It's Jesus that makes heaven, heaven. And our life here now is supposed to be marked by the reality of who we are now in Christ, not who we will be. But we have never been taught this. Nor has this been the expectation. The older saints in here will remember a few generations ago, young people were taught to act in morally upright ways because you didn't want to bring dishonor to your parents or your grandparents. We aren't taught to act that way any longer. But we need to understand is that how we act here is a reflection of the reality of the heavenly Father who has made us righteous, not because of our works or our actions, but because we are his son. Saints, we need to, to believe, to start believing that we are righteous. And then we need to start acting that way. We need to start living in the reality of who and what the Bible not that man, but the Bible tells us what we are. And I'm not talking about snake handling. I'm talking about walking uprightly, living differently than this culture, this world that we are in and not of. And then, beginning in verse 13 of Genesis 6, we are told of how those that have been made righteous, how they act. Beginning in verse 13, we hear God once again speaking as he did previously in verse 7. There, we aren't told who he was speaking to. But here, in verse 13, we know that it was the man that he has made righteous. This is who he is speaking to. And the rest of this chapter follows this pattern. God issuing a decree and then giving instructions to Noah. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make the end of all flesh, for the earth is filled through violence or with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. That's the decree, which is a reiteration of what he said in verse 7. And then the instructions that are given by God to this righteous man. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50. Its height, 30. Make a roof for the ark and finish it a cubit above and set a door in the ark in its side. Make it with the lower, second, and third decks, verses 14 through 16. And then beginning in verse 17, God once again gives a decree, and then instructions beginning in verse 19. For behold, I will bring a flood of water upon the earth and destroy all flesh in which it is, is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. 
but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. In verse 18, we're given another first in the Bible. The first time that, that, God, that God actually uses that word covenant. A covenant had been made earlier with the serpent that would impact and influence all men when God promised a redeemer who would crush the head of the serpent. And all the men who were the godly line of Seth, those that worshipped and called on the name of the Lord, they must have been looking forward to that man. But now for the first time, we hear of a covenant being made with a man, not a serpent. And this covenant isn't, this covenant isn't explained to this man wouldn't be told to this man what that covenant was until long after the flood that would destroy all. And then verse 19. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark and keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kind, of the animals according to their kind, of every creeping thing to the, you know, of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall keep, um, you shall come into them and keep them alive. And he could have left off cockroaches as far as I was concerned. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up, and it shall serve as food for you and for them. And then this chapter ends by telling us how this man, who had been made righteous by God, how he acted. Verse 22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Saints, hear me on, on this and know this is truth. You can't be righteous on your own. All your desires, all your good intentions, none of them can get you any closer to the righteousness of God than those, hit, those actions of Hitler. You must believe that God is and that he is a rewarder of those who sincerely seek him, Hebrews 11.1. 1. But you don't have to have perfect faith or even perfect theology or even perfect knowledge or even perfect belief. He is perfect. We are not. We only need to believe and then act. Listen to the author of Hebrews, how he speaks of this man Noah, Hebrews 11:7. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as of yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Do you not think that there had to have been a time that Noah had to wonder at what in the world he was doing. He was building an ark in the middle of a land where it never rained. There was no lake. There was no ocean. There were probably no other boats around. Just this huge monolith being constructed by crazy old Noah. And the author of Hebrew holds that it was his actions Every single day that he chose to pick up that hammer and saw and walk out to that construction site, no matter how he felt, no matter what the evidence pointed to, Noah had heard the word of God. And because he had been redeemed, been made righteous, he obeyed. 
And in doing so, he condemned the rest of the world and proved that he was an heir of righteousness. Saints, if you are of the redeemed, obey. God is speaking to you, just as he did to the Old Testament saints through the scripture. He's telling, he's telling you how to act, how to live, telling you to work out your own, your, your own salvation in fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who is working the will in you, and it is he who is working the work as well, all for his good pleasure. But you're called to work. Strive to enter into his rest. Not so that you can be seen as holy or righteous, but do that so you can know the Savior, who you are in, and who is worthy of all that you are. And one more point that I want to make before we move on to verses 1 through 5 of Genesis 7. We humans in our culture, even in our Christian culture, we think that more is better. That the size of a crowd determines who is right. The size of a church is the determining factor if, that, if whether or not that church is doing right or not. But I want to point out that the largest church in America is Joel Osteen's church. Just want to point that out. But we still desire to believe the big is better. And we want to believe that the church will expand and grow and that our team is going to win. And it will. But not in the human way. You see, 1,600 years have gone by since Adam. 1,600 years of civilization, of God walking, I'm, I'm sorry, with men walking with God, worshiping God, sacrificing to God. And at the end of that time, there is one man who is said to be righteous. Just one. God has never desired to win by popular opinion. He won because he is. And he doesn't need to draw a crowd to prove that he is holy, that he is God. And the question that I have to ask you is, do you need that? You see, we read the lineage of Seth to Noah. And at the end, it's only Noah that is said to be righteous. And man is only righteous can only be righteous because of God. And God is not concerned about man saying that that is right or not. God opened the eyes of one man, and he gave him the ability to believe, revealed who he was in Christ, and that man obeyed. And the question that I have to ask you is, are you like Noah? Are you willing to obey? Even if you are the last man standing, even if every other so-called Christian forsakes the truth of the Bible and turns apostate, are you willing to stand on the truth of God? In less than six chapters, the world has gone to hell in a handbasket. But the reason for God creating all that is has still not changed. 
His, hand, his plan hasn't been altered or thwarted in any way. In fact, in his plan, things were moving along exactly as planned, just as he desires. And then we come to the last five verses from our text today. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of clean animals, the male and his mate, a, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, a male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heaven also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive in the face, on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the, ground, from the face of the ground. Verse 5. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Verse 1 begins with that command to Noah, go into the ark. And the reason that he, Noah, was told to go into the ark was because, because God had seen that he was righteous before him. This language is very similar to the language that was first used concerning Noah, that he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But it was the Lord looking down that made Noah righteous, not Noah looking up. And this righteous man was given a command. And once again, he obeyed. Noah obeyed when he was given the first command to build an ark, even when it seemed impossible. I don't know if you guys have ever been to the ark, that reconstruction of the ark. I've never been there. But what I've, I've seen a video of it, and that thing is huge. It took over 18 months and a team of over 1,000 men using all of our latest equipment and technology to bring all the material to them to build that thing. It's huge. Noah, we're told, did the same thing with the help of a very, a very few individuals over the course of many years, a hundred or so. And as we heard from Hebrews, it was his actions in building this ark that condemned the world around him. See, he, Noah could have decided to delay in building. He could have decided, I'm going to put that on my to-do list and then just forgotten about it. But he obeyed. Hear this, saint. Because of his obedience, when God gave him the command to enter the ark, the ark was ready to be entered. You're never going to be given a command to build an ark as Noah was. But we are commanded to act in faith just as Noah did. Every single day of our lives. Our actions, like the actions of Noah in his generation, stand as a testimony to the reality of the God that has redeemed us and made us righteous. Do you understand that? Every day that we wake up, every day that we wake up and fall on our knees and pray to God, every day that we labor hard in taking care of our families, every day that we suit up and work for work and determine that we're going to be the best employee that we can be, every day that we decide to forsake the things of this world for the things of God, knowing that the opulence and the ease and the toys of this world war against our very souls, Every day that we live 
for and live on the reality of sola scriptura, we, like Noah, are condemning the world as we, like Noah, preach the gospel to them. You may be thinking, what has this got to do with us? Well, Christ has once again told that doomsday clock on the wall, start. And it's ticking away. And he is returning. And there is, there will be a day that he will call your name specifically. And you, there is no guarantee that this is not that day. Will he find you to be like Noah? Obedient. What we need to understand is that that judgment, the judgment that will follow Noah and his family entering the ark, that judgment is nothing compared to the judgment that is coming when Christ returns. We need to understand that he, he destroyed the world once and saved the righteous. As an illustration of the coming end, he's going to do it again. And may we, the righteousness of Christ, may we determine that we will live like Noah. That since we are the righteousness of Christ, may we determine that we can and we will obey not perfectly, we can't do that. But we are perfect in our standing with the one who is perfect, who gave us, who imputed to us his righteousness. And just like here, he looks down at us and calls us by name, and he says, you are righteous in this generation. May we be like Noah. Let's pray.